Recorded in the darkest dungeons of the basement of Death Studio, Josh, Troy, and Ty present a show dedicated to bringing you, the listener, into the adventure right along with them. Pick up your sword or load your bolt gun, but don't forget your helmet, because it is time for some playing and slaying. from the BOD studio. It is playing and slaying. Oh, that felt like a good intro. Let's take that one and use it for all of 57 episodes. Redub, re-release. But this is episode 57, joined by Josh and Troy. We will find where Bryce is and kidnap him for the next episode to to get him back in. Um, Tonight's episode is is a little bit different. Uh, We... We kind of went a long format with episode 56 with, with Meph. Uh, That's what we're was, calling it. Yeah, long, long format. format. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ton of fun. I, I think him and I could have probably talked another two hours, but you two would have fallen asleep. And as would uh, most of our listeners that aren't used to, you know, long, long format. Um, but tonight we had a chance to uh, sit down with Matt and Marty Forbeck. So Matt Forbeck, uh, New York Times bestselling author, game designer, editor, I mean, kind of renaissance man in, in the gaming industry and, and his son, uh, who are currently working, um, well, working on, but also have a active Kickstarter for Shotguns and Sorcery, um, a fifth edition source book for the world that Matt created via a Cypher System game that's out there. Um, an omnibus of short stories and um, novellas uh, set in in the world of, of his creation, Shotguns and Sorcery. Um, and he, he goes on to tell us a little bit more about that. And then he talked a little bit about the design process and, and just some general questions that we had for him. Um, so it was just a fantastic chance for us to sit down and uh, in this virtual time and space is there kind of in the midst of the media blitz for the Kickstarter. Um, want to thank uh, Jen, uh, DK, close friend, um, who put put us in touch with with Matt uh, through some, um, some friends and connections that she has. So thanks to Jen for helping us set that up. Um, but that was the, the show. We got to sit down and talk with them. Anything you guys want to lead into the interview with? In hindsight, it's always fun to do an intro. Okay, sure after you record no it was a it was a blast yeah listen in you're gonna learn a lot i learned a lot it was it was a blast yeah he's a wealth of knowledge and 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 marty too you know kind of telling us about the design process and and kind of the the history of of uh matt's career and yeah it's, it's awesome yeah very very good very good listen so grab a beer uh get some popcorn and then enjoy our our uh, talk with Matt and Marty Forbeck. 
All right. And here we are with Matt and Marty Forbeck. Thank you very much for coming on the uh, show, Playing and Slaying, episode 57. Um, just great to have you guys on. Wanted to thank you for being here. Thank, thank you. you very much for having us. Yeah. yeah. And uh, tonight we're going we're gonna to kind of go on a, a little bit of a tour through, you know, your gamer origin stories, um, kind of some of your experiences in the industry, Matt. And then what we really want to focus on is the Kickstarter that we are uh, rapidly approaching the, the end of. As of today, I, I believe I saw you're about three times over the goal. So just a, yeah. an awesome success so far for Shotguns and Sorcery, uh, the fifth edition source book. Um, yeah, we have, so, uh, it ends on the 16th. So, uh, about eight days from now and about this time of night, I think actually, uh, we'll be wrapping it up. We only ran it for three weeks. We wanted to kind of get through a lot of times. Kickstarters are very mushy in the middle and, you know, people don't pay a lot of attention. You spend your time, entire time going, come on, pay attention to me. <laughs> and it's kind of nice to just run it for three weeks instead of four or five. Yeah. Get in, get out. And, um, you know, just, uh, I, I think, when I was watching, I've been kind of watching the progress over the, the last few days funded very quickly um, yeah. as well, which was fantastic. Now blasted out of the gate. We funded in four hours, which we were really thrilled about. And uh, you know, since then, of course, you know, all Kickstarters do this to go whoosh, and then it's like tick, 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 <laughs> and then whoosh, hopefully at the end too, <laughs> hopefully. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty pleased that it's going so far. Yep. You know, it's not my first time doing a Kickstarter. So I understand there's that lull in the middle. Some people the first time through, they'll go, Oh, sh nobody's paying attention. And then you panic and you start screeching at people about what, uh, what they need to do. But you know, it's, uh, we're pretty pleased with it, but honestly, if we'd only made $10,000 and eaten it up at the end of the whole thing, we'd have still done the book. Right. Uh, but now we get to actually make sure it's a really good looking book. Uh, hopefully, you know, put a little uh, jingle in our jeans as they say too. you know, and, uh, help send my kids to college. Marty's already out, but I got three more in college. <laughs> you know? I came so out with good. debt, you know, what's that? <laughs> I came out with <laughs> debt too. You know? Exactly. You did. So let's see if we can retire some of that. That'd be a good thing for you. So. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And Marty, I, I will uh, have some questions about Wisconsin for you at the end. Cause I'm, I'm also a, an alumnus of uh, the university of Wisconsin. So I'm going to have oh. to, ask your favorite spots, you know, favorite library restaurant course, might, might go through a couple there at the end for yeah. and anyone that cares about our, uh, badger, um, world of badger. So, I love uh, that stuff myself. I went to Michigan. So I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin. I went to Michigan and then we're like, do we send Marty to Michigan? Like, Have you seen tuition costs at Michigan? Forget it. State? No, no. Um, yeah, no reciprocity with, uh, with Michigan. So no, no, definitely not. And Wisconsin's a really a damn good deal. Honestly. I mean, it's not cheap, but what you get out of, it's really fantastic. Absolutely. Especially for instance. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you touched on growing up in Wisconsin. So what we're going to do now is something we ask any, anyone that comes on uh, to playing and slaying with us is we kind of equate gamers to superheroes in their own right. So, you know, the, the best part of every superhero story is kind of the origin story. Right. Um, so what, what I'd like to do is ask, uh, each of you, and I'll start Matt with you, what is your gamer origin story? Like, when did you get into gaming and then, you know, how did that transcend to being a, a career? I mean, ultimately, right. Um, well, I got two answers to that first time I just got into basic games, like, you know, playing games, my family was always into games, like playing monopoly in life, and, you know, euchre and poker and stuff like that. Uh, but I remember I was in the hospital when I was six years old. 
with pneumonia, terrible asthma, and I was hospitalized for two weeks uh, in an oxygen tent. And our family priest, I was Catholic, uh, came in and gave me last rites, right? And then wow. taught me how to play chess right after that. So, um, so that was the dawn of the whole gaming thing. And uh, and so I learned how to play chess and I was doing pretty well. And then uh, in when I was in uh, eighth grade, I think, just starting eighth grade or about to start eighth grade, the kids across the street had gotten Dungeons and Dragons in the uh, the blue, what they call it, not the bold vase set, but the one before the Holmes box set, right? Um, with the blue cover and the dragon in the front and, of the rule book. And uh, his mother had picked it up for him uh, as a Christmas gift on a blue light special at Kmart. And they were trying to figure out a way for us to, you know, like they had just moved in across the street the year before and we didn't really know each other that well. And my mom and his mom were like, we got to figure out a way to get these kids together. What do you got? And I'm like, well, let's throw this silly game at them and see what happens. And man, we got hooked hard, right? I think that first summer we played every day. And then the problem was we would play baseball in the afternoon, Dungeons and Dragons at night. <laughs> and the problem was that uh, uh, when we got it, we had we started out with the basic D&D rules, but AD&D was just coming out. Yep. So we started using the AD&D monsters and, and, and modules. And honestly, if you play basic D&D with AD&D stuff, you get killed. <laughs> really quick. I think we came up with a party like every other day, right? Like, oh, well, we're all done. Let's go back at it. You know, it didn't stop us at all. It was just a uh, total party kill long before we knew what the hell that meant uh, and then moved on to it. I, I grew up, I started going to conventions. I grew up in Southern Wisconsin in Beloit, a little town on the border. And I often tell people that if I'd grown up in LA, I probably got, would have gotten into film. If I'd grown up in New York, I probably would have gotten into traditional publishing. But I grew up 40 miles away from where Dungeons & Dragons was born, essentially, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. So uh, I started going to conventions when I was a kid, like 13 years old. I met Gary Gygax at a convention, and he signed my uh, one of my books. I forget. It was The Tomb of Horrors, I think. Or no, Temple of Elemental Evil in 1982. And then uh, I started going to Gen Con when I was uh, in 82, actually, that later that year. And I've been going to every Gen Con since. So that's now 40 years of Gen Con for me, right? Just going year after year. And uh, I started hanging out with a lot of guys at the show. Uh, and you know, I had a mini magazine when I was a kid. I had what would be called a zine nowadays. And I had my own booth at Gen Con when I was 17 years old trying to sell subscriptions of this. And lasted two whole issues before we had to fold because we ran out of money, uh, which was like $1,000 out of my college fund. <laughs> And, but you tell you the best tuition money I ever spent, right? It's just, uh, I learned more doing that than I did anything else and put me on my career path. I ended up uh, meeting a guy named Trey Denning, who uh, would end up bringing me up to uh, Delavan to play test games for a new company that started with Steve Sullivan and Gally Sanchez and a bunch of other people, Andre Heyday, uh, called Pace Setter. And we would play test, you know, they had Chill and uh, Time Ace and, um, our star chill stories, time master, a bunch of other games. Uh, and then when I went to college, Will or uh, Troy introduced me to a guy named Will Niebling, and that got me into doing sales repping. Will was uh, actually the first vice president at TSR, and uh, after he left them, started doing sales for Mayfair Games, Grenadier Models, Iron Crown Enterprises, Coplo Games, all this kind of stuff. So he would take me to conventions doing that, and from there, I kind of weaseled my way into editing, and then uh basically made a career out of it. There's a lot more to that story, but it's a long, uh, long story. I, uh, <laughs> it's, it's been fun. <laughs> yeah. That's basically how I got into gaming. I, and that's how I got into it professionally then. 
uh, you know, I ended up doing freelancing and then founded Pinnacle Entertainment Group uh, with Shane Hensley. We did Deadlands and Brave New World um, up until we started having kids and then we split up the company. So I, I came back to Wisconsin with Marty here uh, on my lap. I was actually telling the story, Marty, at the uh, Ed Greenwood chat and Jeff, where yeah. when you were born, uh, Brave New World wasn't out yet. It came out, you, came, you were born in 98, Brave New World came out in 99. And there was about three months there we were homeless because we tried to move up to Milwaukee and the place we we're going to move into was a shithole. And we decided I couldn't bring an infant son into there. Um, so I ended, well, I say homeless, I was living in my dad's gigantic house with spare bedrooms and a library. It wasn't like in the street or anything. Without your own individual home. Yeah, exactly. Technically, <laughs> your mom has been a homeless liaison for many years. Technically, we were homeless because it wasn't our place, yeah. um, but it, it wasn't a permanent residence. But yeah, it was like three months of basically living in uh, an old bedroom in my dad's house. It was fine. It was, you know, the, the bedroom we were in, I think, was probably larger than my first apartment. So um <laughs> So it was a fine place to be, but I remember being in the library. That's what he had a library. So it was not that terrible, but, uh, and we had a computer set up. I had a computer here and a keyboard here. I had Marty as an infant on my lap and I would reach over him to write <laughs> Brave New World as he was sleeping. And I would just kind of juggle you with my knees to keep you. I know exactly what room you're talking about. That room was moldy. That wasn't a good place for <laughs> later. Yeah. yeah. We were, that's because they had a leak in the roof later years, but yes. Uh, um, so yeah that was I, that's how i started out doing this that's fantastic yeah. i think that's an awesome segue then marty to your gamer origin yes. story because it sounds like you might have been doing game design and development as an infant so <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> that's truly was, a superpower i was uh i was i was six months old but i was reaching over onto the keyboard um you know plugging in my own notes on Tell Brave New World. Yeah. It was really terrible. He didn't credit me or anything. <laughs> Actually, you know what, though? And again, I told this story to, to the guys before. Um, but as I was writing that, I needed a character for the example character. So I used Marty as the example character, the, the player, right? And it was a superhero game. So his name as a superhero was Rebel. Uh, and that was used throughout the entire game. We, I have friends who still meet Marty at Gen Con every year and say, hey, Rebel, how you doing? Right? <laughs> Marcelo Figueroa used to be with AEG. We'll still call him Rebel every right. time he sees him. So. Yeah. But I should have been on the front of the book. I should have been on the front. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Doesn't so, count. Sorry, Tiger. <laughs> dedication doesn't count. Next, yeah, it was uh, dedicated to you. That's right. So, yeah, yeah, that doesn't count. Um, well, next time. Uh, well, yeah, uh, I have been playing games since I could basically hold a controller or a pencil. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> or dice. Um, so I don't know. I could pick out about 15 different points of origin. Uh, <laughs> I'll limit myself to two like you did. Um, the very first game I ever remember playing was Sega Bass Fishing for the Sega Dreamcast. I, I know that I must have been two and a half years old when that came out. I was two and a half year old, years old when that came out. So I must have been two or three when I played it. And literally that game came with a plastic fishing rod. Um, I spent many, many hours trying to catch a digital fish. Um, (laughs) And I think I only succeeded a single time. And then they discontinued the Dreamcast and my father in his terrible, wrathful, what he calls wisdom, sold Traded in his Sega Dreamcast, his piece of history, for for petty cash, 
Uh, it's um, probably for diapers uh, and yeah, in order to buy me a baby food or whatever i could have gone without uh yeah uh, but you marty is not telling you the other trick is that when he was about that age my wife got pregnant with quadruplets right so we actually had four kids who are now 19 years old they could have gone without two they could have gone without two yeah that's, that's a lot of diapers to go without two. <laughs> my entire life i've been re- trying to recapture the wonder of catching that first fish <laughs> so let me uh, let me guess are there uh fishing rules in shotguns and sorcery any any <laughs> no but there are mermen uh, there we go yep. so so uh close enough i guess oh. um uh, point number two <laughs> Point number two, origin point number two. Um, uh, I didn't really get into sophisticated, like complex games until I was about 10 years old, 11 years old. Uh, I guess there was kind of a gap in there. The only, <laughs> the only games I played between uh, like the ages of like two and 10 were like uh, platformers on the Xbox. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but when I got to be 10 years old, I started playing D&D. It was like the the second or third D and D game I ever played was at Gary Con One. It was with uh, Frank Menser. <laughs> Frank Menser was my DM, and I played the Temple of Elemental Evil. No, no, no! It was the Palace of the Vampire. No, it was it was the it was the, the it was the vampire. I have the plaque right over here. Yeah, Frank what's Menser's... the name of it? I can't remember. I always blow it. I always blow it. I always blow it too. Frank, you got the plaque. Look at it. He just took it home with him this last weekend. I'll go get it. This is terrible radio. I'll go get it. <laughs> that was actually his first game ever. It was a Gary Con one. Oh wow! Uh, the first time they actually had an official convention. We did Gary Con zero at the reception that they held after yeah. Gary's funeral. But um, so what does it say? The Alice Tiger? of the Vampire Queen. Thank you. Uh, on Alice March six, two thousand nine. So I was definitely ten years old. That was like the second D&D game I was ever in. Frank Menser of TSR fame. One, Excellent. I don't think we played before that. First, first, very first, you I think? I was your first yeah. one, yeah. Excellent, wow. excellent uh, DM, Frank Menser of TSR fame. That's, that's <laughs> um, quite the yeah. way to start. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we had and, Steve uh, Sullivan at the table, a whole bunch of other uh, fantastic designers. And uh, then Frank gave out certificates for everybody at the end of it, which is what Marty has in his thing right there. So Yeah. Uh, uh yeah and uh now uh tabletop games are pretty good i think uh i think that was the first convention uh, you ever went to as well actually. yeah that that was what that was like coming home tabletop games I, are pretty good that convention was held at the american legion hall in lake geneva where i had gone to my first convention uh the winter fantasy back in like 1981 82 something like that um, and that's actually where they had had the reception after Gary's funeral too. So uh, it was a place that was, you know, uh, one of the original Gen Cons had been there back in the day. Yep. So it was yeah, a fantastic I, place to go. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a little older than these two guys. Uh, so Matt, <laughs> we we're, we're pretty close. Cause my first Gen Con was 1983 uh, Par- Parkside um, yep. <laughs> university. And then I also went to uh, the winter fantasy at uh, the grade school sometime in the eighties where I also Frank also ran was one of my, a game that are, that he ran there. So 
yeah. And then I got to play with him 30 years later at Gamehole Con to kind of close the circle on some of that. So <laughs> that's awesome. definitely, yeah, you guys are basically bringing back memories because, uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, the age of when I was, when I got into it and started playing. So I haven't hit every Gen Con since 83, <laughs> but I pretty much since the 90s, 90s on, I've, I've pretty much been there. Oh, yeah. I, I never miss it. Yeah. Uh, actually, at, at Gamehole Con, I ran into my first ever game master at a game I played at a convention. It was Steve Winter. Uh, the guy who did Boothill Second Edition does all you know, tons and tons of DSD stuff over the years. Has actually been my editor for Wizards of the Coast and TSR before that. And but I had met him when I was 13 years old playing Boot Hill at uh, Winter Fantasy way back in the day. <laughs> you get hooked, you know. Yep, the yep. funny part is when you grow yeah. up, and these guys are then selling your peers, and you're working with them. You're like, <laughs> and odd, but there you go. It's well, good. There's such a rich tradition in Wisconsin. And I mean, we're, we're all Wisconsinites here and um, you know, the, the birthplace of, of Gen Con. And now I think what's really cool to see is game hole con has carved out seven years in a row, you know, kind of the gap that the void after Gen Con moved, there was this space for um, a, a show to come in and game hole, you know, Alex and, and those guys have just made something truly unique and focused on all the right stuff from a, a gaming standpoint, you know, and yeah. the, the way they're doing it. Um, I absolutely love that show. Those guys, I think it was, was it nine this last year? So I think it's, they just did the ninth, right? They skipped one last year, obviously it was virtual, but yeah. Um, Cause I remember, I think the t-shirt said IX on it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was the eighth. It's, Either way. It's gotta be close there. Yeah. Yeah. Eight or yeah, nine. It's, it, yeah. Something it's somewhere in there. I yeah, should look, but, uh, I missed one so far. They their yeah. guests like gold, right? They fly in from around the country. <laughs> They put them up there. Alex has got a restaurant in town where the actual game hole is, um, which is, you know, the game hole originally was the place where the, one of their parents' basements where they got together and played D&D. They called it the game hole, um, which is, you know, it's just got to be the worst name ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, nowadays, Alex owns a restaurant called the Freehouse Pub in uh, Middleton. And the upstairs part of that, they have an upstairs, which I didn't even know this. Yeah. I'd been there years before. But that's where he actually has his D&D collection he's got one of the best collections in the world and the place with a big table he's got like almost a throne that he sits in he's got the original forgotten realms map that ed greenwood built for the for the game it's just stunning stuff and really great guys him and yeah. andrew hitchcock and the whole group there really do an amazing job really put together a great show so speaking of convention play and, and kind of RPGs, what I want to know about is the, the Forbeck family campaign. Was there ever like a, a family game, a, a campaign as Marty was growing yeah, my, up? My second and third games were uh, uh, with my, my dad and uh, they were not as good as, with, as the Frank Mensa ones. <laughs> yeah, that's because I was running you and your, your yeah, friends my, through my, this. My, 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 my childhood play. friends were not. A not, bunch as, of uh, not as good companions as professional game designers. Yeah, hard to believe. Uh, <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Actually, I remember I wrote that up for what the hell was the name of the it was a fourth edition adventure. Right, but it was the escapist. Actually, I, I wrote that up as a series of articles for the escapist uh, about how to teach people how to play fourth edition. And my conclusion was that you needed a computer to make the characters. It was just crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, and they had some software for it, but it was it was finicky. So, um, but yeah, we that didn't last too long. And then yeah, we don't really have a campaign at home, even though the kids have been asking for one forever. I keep saying, "You're old enough; you can run your own games now." <laughs> um, but part of that's because as a game designer, uh, yeah, I'm a terrible game player, right? I, I just basically like to take a game, play it once or twice, figure out how it works, dissect it, and then I move on to the next thing. 
So I never stick around long enough to get good at a game, right? Uh, I'm not very skilled at most games because I'm usually like, this is it. We're going to play this. And then, boom, it goes back on the shelf. You can play with your friends, kids. Yeah, yeah we played we played D&D a few times at home. It's like one-offs. Yeah, we like, we, we even played shotguns and sorcery a couple of times. I ran like uh, the shotguns and sorcery 5e stuff while it was in beta with, right. with the family, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, There's always this other dynamic when you're, I was proud of you for doing that because there's a very strange dynamic when you're running it for your younger siblings. (laughs) And they're trying not to punch each other at the table. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, and and with game design and I mean, a a plate, a certain amount of play testing, I'm I'm sure too, like when you're working on your own game, you know, it's, it's not like you're experiencing it as a a new look into it. Like you sit down at a table with a game you haven't played you're so deep into it and um, it, it creates that kind of, it's an interesting um, dichotomy of like looking at it from the lens of what can I change and adapt versus experiential play and narrative. And, yeah. and, and one of the big tricks for t- playtesting a role-playing game is playtesting a role-playing game sucks, right? Because <laughs> honestly, if you're a good game master, you can make any rule system work, right? Because you, you're entertaining. You, you're telling the right. story, you're getting everybody pitch in and play, whatever. That's a whole different set of skills than the actual playing of the game so you're play testing a game you're actually working on the mechanics and trying to see what breaks and then you have to so you put people in unusual situations and the story kind of goes out the window because that's a lot of it's dressing and then you're like okay that didn't work what the hell do i have to do to reinforce this and so that's one of the reasons i like to do play testing uh i'll set you know we do a little bit in house and i send it out to other people where i'm not around and part of that is you're testing not just the rules and the mechanics but whether or not you've expressed them well enough for people to understand them right uh, and so when somebody writes back and says, no, I hated this, and this is this. And you're like, oh, it's because you weren't playing it right. And you're like, ah, well, that's my fault. Shit. <laughs> I should have done a better job of expressing that. Uh, but that's where you find the holes that you're blind to, you know, uh, the things yeah. that you expect. You can just go, OK, now I understand. Now I know how to rephrase that. Or I didn't think that was going to be a problem, but clearly it was. Yeah. All right. So let's let's talk shotguns and sorcery. Uh, OK. We talked about the Kickstarter, um, you know, make. We will certainly link to that. We hope to have this out here. Obviously, recording today on on the eighth with the uh, the weekend coming up being the end of it. But let's talk about the the world itself. Um, you know, kind of summarize this for any of our listeners, viewers that that may not be familiar. Um, what what is fantasy noir and and what is shotguns and sorcery? Want to do this one, Marty? You want me to do it? Uh, no, you take it. It's, it's yours originally. <laughs> right, but you've been doing a great job. Marty and I ran a boatload of games at Gamehole kind of. I got to watch him do it as well. He did a fantastic job. But he is right. It is mine originally. Um, okay, so Shotguns and Sorcery, Fantasy Noir is a world in which a zombie apocalypse happened uh, under the leadership of this necromancer called the Ruler of the Dead. This crazed woman sent out the zombies against everybody, chased all the free peoples to essentially what was the lonely mountain out of the Hobbit, right? And there's a dragon in there. And they're surviving free people show up and say, dragon, save us. And the dragon says, well, you'll let, I will go out there and blast the zombies with fire long enough for you to build a wall. And then I'm going to rule this empire that we've set up here, right? This within the city's wall. So basically they, people live now in a place called Dragon Mountain, which is uh, surrounded by a city wall called the Great Circle. And it's run by the dragon emperor who sits at the top. And then below that, you get uh, stratified by basically longevity and power you get the people. So you get uh, the dragon, the elves and the elven's reaches, 
the dwarves in the stronghold, the gnomes in Gnome Town, the hobbits in the big burrow, the, peep, the humans in the village, and then down right next to the wall where you can still hear the zombies moaning at night and scratching at the walls, you get all the quote-unquote evil races that used to be there. So it's the orcs and the goblins and the kobolds and the ogres and everything else that live down in Goblin Town, right down by the edge of the wall. And uh, this is 500 years since the, uh, since the original invasion has passed, but there are still the zombies out there. The ruler of the dead is immortal and still plaguing the area. Uh, and the dragon occasionally comes out of his spire, his cave at the top to threaten things. Uh, but you know things have gotten a little bit more advanced over the years. So uh, I was comparing this to putting it in a pressure cooker where you know a lot of times in these fantasy worlds, it seems like they just stay pre-industrial forever, right? It's like, oh yeah, it's been three ages of Middle Earth and still, you know, we don't have a, a gasoline. We don't know what we're doing. So, um, so in this case, they basically started using magic because it kind of permeates everything to substitute for a lot of what we consider tech. So they have glow globes that uh, light the streets that come on at dark. And you can tap, a, if you walk into a room, you can tap a panel and the glow globe comes on above you. Uh, if you want to flag a ride, you stick your hand up and a taxi flies down out of the air as, as a flying carpet to pick you up to bring you out other parts of the city. Um, weapons have advanced to the point where we actually have like 1910, 1920s type weaponry. So we have shotguns, pistols, rifles, occasional Tommy guns and machine guns even. Uh, but all these things are enchanted too. So you can have weapons that uh, if you tap it on the ground, it reloads instantly. Or you can shove in enchanted shells into it so you can fire spells out of your shotgun. Um, and all sorts of wacky stuff like that. So that's shotguns and sorcery in a nutshell. Uh, it's a really fun area to play in. Uh, I originally came up with this as a, uh, an idea for third edition back when they were doing the world hunt for third edition, which produced Eberron, right? Which is a great series that I actually wrote a trilogy of novels for. My buddy, Keith Baker was the guy who came up with Eberron. And uh, I turned around and said, okay, well, you didn't take mine out of the 10,000 applications to Keith, that's fine. <laughs> uh, and I, I sold it to uh, Mongoose Publishing and was ready to, you know, they had actually licensed it. We we're going to do a whole line of books and I was going to write the books. And then my wife got pregnant with quads and I'm like, well, that's out the window. I got to concentrate on, you know, taking care of children and what other, other, other jobs I got going on. Um, and they were perfectly fine about that. And that took till about 10 years later when Robin Laws, asked me if I was interested in contributing a short story to this fiction anthology I was doing. And so I dusted off Shotguns and Sorcery and wrote the first story for it, uh, which I just loved. I fell in love with the writing in a way, um, right away again. And uh, then I wrote another one for the Origins Writers Anthology for the Origins Game Convention. And then uh, I wrote, I did this crazy thing in, tw in 2012 called 12 for 12, where I tried to write 12 novels in a year. Right? Oh, wow. Um, and they were 50,000 word novels, which is a little short. Most novels were about 80,000 words, um, but still qualifies as a novel. And I, uh, I broke it up into four trilogies and ran Kickstarters for each one of them. And the second of those trilogies was Shotguns and Sorcery. So um, we had a, one, uh, this group really enjoyed it. They wanted to turn it into an enhanced ebook where they're going to like put in uh, animation and maps and character profiles and music and all sorts of shit. And they went bankrupt before they could pull it off. But <laughs> the art director over there loved it so much. He bugged me for a year about doing a role-playing game for it. And I was too busy with other stuff and didn't have time to do it. But eventually I just relented and said, okay, Jeremy, you have a publishing company. Why don't you do that? So in 2015, he ran a Kickstarter for the Shotguns and Sorcery role-playing game, which uses the Cypher system uh, from Monty Cook Games. And Monty's an old friend of mine as well. In fact, he edited some of the first RPG books I did, Western Hero and Outlaw way back in the day for Iron Crown Enterprise came out like 91 or 92. And um, so uh, 
the guys over at Outland who were doing their best, they ended up stumbling and not getting the game out for quite a few years, right? They just had some internal problems. Uh, and I love them all. They do great work and they did great artwork for it. But as the license was expiring in 2020, I looked at them and they looked at me and I said, uh, do, you, do you really want to continue with this? Or do you want to just, you know, you got other projects. Maybe you want to, uh, I'll take it back. We'll finish it all up for the previous Kickstarter and then we'll do something else with it. And they said, yeah, that sounds about right. So um, Marty and I worked on Marty actually wrote the uh, couple different books for Cypress System and helped Spectacles me out some bunch of other stuff for thing. it. Exactly. Uh, which were his first real published credits in the gaming industry, which I was happy to have him do. But that was also the reason when I'm like, Marty graduates in 2019. I say, Marty, what do you want to do? He's like, well, I'd like to write games. I'm like, you idiot. What the hell are you thinking? <laughs> Haven't I talked to you <laughs> Yeah, that never gets through. <laughs> um, but apparently he thought it was fun what I was doing. So he decided he wanted to have fun too, which I don't blame him for. And uh, so once he finished that stuff with the Cypher system, I set him on doing the fifth edition version of shotguns and sorcery so he did all the mechanics for it right everything for that and did a great job with it i did a little bit of development work and then so about 95 percent of the text is done right now the only thing we have to do is i have to write um some fiction snippets to lead off every chapter i'm gonna write brand new stuff for that and we have a few pieces of artwork that are probably going to, we actually don't know that we need them but when we lay out the book i suspect there are going to be places where you say you know what we could really use a piece of that and it's probably going to be like three or four pages worth of stuff. So again, 95% of the artwork done. Uh, so the book is really very close to done. We want to make sure that was the case before we launched the Kickstarter because we didn't want to have a repeat of the previous problem with the previous publisher. Um, and just today, we actually just announced that uh, the guy who wrote the Cypher System rules, Rob Schwalb, is going to come in and help us out with the development of this game as well. He's going to do a development oh, pass on Marty's work uh, and help polish it up. So... Uh, and as I explained to Marty, this is what you do you, uh, because it's bad to uh, design in a vacuum. It's good to hire in experts who know exactly what the system's doing, how it can break in different ways and have them say, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. Let me see if we can make it even better. Right. Yeah, so that's yeah. what we're bringing Rob in for. Rob we did the same thing. Guy. He wrote the, the rules for the, uh, the original book. Yeah, he wrote the rules yeah, for the yeah. original Cypher system. So he's great for that. We did the same thing when Marty did the Pathfinder conversion for us, too, that we released as part of the previous Kickstarter. And uh, we brought in Owen Seiler uh, for that one. And Owen's a great, you know, worked for Paizo for many years, knows Pathfinder backwards and forwards. And uh, that's mostly because I was hiring these guys to cover for me. I don't know those systems as well as they do. So it's, you know, I was going to be as good a developer as they could be. So it was worthwhile to bring them in and uh, have them help us out with their expertise in that. And honestly, you're not going to find two guys who know those systems better in the world, right? Rob is one of the original designers for uh, fifth edition and worked right. on fourth edition as well. And did a shitload of stuff for third edition. Plus, he's just a great game designer with Shadow of the Demon Lord and Punk Apocalyptic and all sorts of other great stuff. And Owen, again, you know, knows Pathfinder probably as well as anybody in the world. So uh, I was really happy to have them on board and just make sure. Because when you do this stuff creatively, you just want to make sure you're doing it right. So when it goes out to people, they don't say, what the hell are you thinking? And you're like, oh, well, I was thinking this. But if you got somebody who's been doing this professionally, they can help you out, make sure that it's all as clean and polished as can be before it goes out. So, so Marty, with with the fifth edition kind of conversion in, into that rule set, I, I guess if you had to say like, what was the the hardest part about that? Taking the the shotguns and sorcery setting and adapting it because D and D, I mean, has high fantasy, high magic, you know, swords, sorcery, but shotguns. Was it some of that, like the gunplay, or were there other aspects that were more difficult in the converting to the fifth edition rule set? Uh, I mean, the gunplay rules were tricky. 
um, because uh, mostly mostly on account of the the number of guns. Because fifth edition already has rules for guns buried deep in the in the dungeon master's in guide, the DM's guide. Yeah, there's uh, that uh, page or two. <laughs> because of the uh, um, uh, the 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 sort of hard boiled nature of this setting, you know, we wanted to tweak them and make small changes and. Uh, with with obviously we want a shotgun to play a little bit different from like a revolver. Um, there's a the DM's guide is just like well they all fire the same way. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the biggest um, uh, the the hardest part of the conversion was really just like cipher system is a very mechanically not not simple system but it's cut down compared to um, something like D and D which is all about adding numbers and, and lots of numbers and all that. And uh, for this conversion, uh, we wanted to take every single item and gun uh, and and uh, character from the Cypher system game and then add more on top of that and give them all fully fleshed out stats um, for 5e. And uh, that took a long time. That's like, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's like uh, you know, detailing out you know how long it takes to create one character it's you know it's detailing out you know dozens and dozens of like 10th level characters uh so uh, it took a couple of days <laughs> a couple of days yeah <laughs> i did so, that with third edition when i did the red hearse academy of magic and i was I, I was a guy who knew what he was doing with the indian in those days and we had to do stat out like 20 20th level mages right and it took me half a day for each one of them just sitting in an office working for somebody else going it's a lot of work it's a lot of math right and the problem is there's a right answer so if you screw it up somebody's gonna say no not right here you know they'll find yeah yeah, they'll find the math there um so as as a source book you know i i think of character classes equipment skills what what are some of the core tenets of the the book you know that it that it would add to like an existing 5e campaign if somebody wanted to take this and put you know dragon mountain into their campaign what kind of optionality does it add as a source book as a you know a reference for somebody that's already running a game that wants to include the 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 city and the the denizens of it into their game right well, one of the things we did there, I'll let Marty answer about the mechanic parts, but one of the things I, when I was doing this originally, I wanted to come up with a setting you could basically plug into or onto any other setting, right? So uh, if you have a map of your campaign world and there's a place that says, here there be dragons, right? Or a blank spot or whatever. Suddenly it's, here there be zombies. And you know that surrounds Dragon Mountain. It could be an island. It could be someplace separated by a river or a mountain range or whatever. And as long as you have a blank spot in, you can just poof, drop that right in over there. And those people have been isolated for centuries. Now you're going to discover them somehow. So you could actually start out a fresh campaign there if you want. But if you have an existing ongoing campaign, it's actually fairly simple to travel there, right? You can either go overland or actually the Wizards Academy, known as the Apprentice of Arcane. No, Academy of Arcane Apprenticeships. I named it Triple A because I was an idiot and I can never remember how it was. Because <laughs> um, I thought it was funny. <laughs> what the hell was I thinking? Um, so... Uh, but they have dirigibles that come in and travel from uh, other parts of the world occasionally too, and do research trips. So you, you might meet somebody from there in your own world that might lure you over and say, Hey, we got some jobs for you. Hey, do you know, you like killing zombies? We got zombies, you know, come on down. Um, but mechanically Marty, I think did a good job with it too. You really updated a whole lot of stuff. You want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, the, the number one thing we wanted to do was focus on the setting uh, I mean, there, there are a bunch of new mechanics in this, like with the gunplay and with 
converted characters and items and stuff. But um, as far as making changes to like the overall 5e mechanical framework, um, there aren't many additions. We added a new class right. um, and we added a couple of new races and, and we, we changed um, the way that um, racial traits work slightly. Um, but overall, um, uh, more, more of what's detailed in the book is how you can like fit existing characters and existing like classes into this world rather than um, how classes change or should change right. for the world. Um, because we, we, we don't want people to have to learn like a whole bunch of new systems for the setting. We, we want the setting to, to, to work on its own. Right. Uh, and to be yeah. modular, to be something that you can slip in like that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The stories as they approach each system kind of deform around the system, so to speak. The system is the skeleton and the stories kind of wrap themselves around that. And, you know, D&D and Pathfinder and Cypher system are all slightly different structures. So the expression that uh, changes the story as it comes out, the backgrounds it comes out. We actually have a list here on the, uh, on the Kickstarter page, but it talks about uh, for mechanical stuff, it says an entirely revamped racial system, including 16 playable races, featuring two entirely new ones, mermen and beastmen, a brand new character class, plus rules to make standard 5e classes fully compatible with the setting, 14 new character backgrounds, cults as new organizations within Dragon City, guidelines for handling religion in the city, every single magic item, monster, and NPC from original shotguns and sorcery, and all of its supplements converted to 5e. Revamped gunplay rules, including at least a dozen new guns and weapons, loads of campaign hooks, and blah, blah, you know, all sorts of different background stuff as well. So there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, even if you don't end up using the background, there's a lot of good crunchy stuff in there that you might want to transfer yeah. to a similar mm -hmm. kind of game. Uh, and hopefully, that you know, I know a lot of people when you buy this stuff, you're transforming it over to your own personal campaign. So you're just mining it for ideas, right? So we've got lots of mechanical ideas and lots of, uh, of story ideas there for you as well. Yeah, as, as the resident GM for our, our group, I, I tend to do a lot of that mining other materials for things to use. Oh, so It's a so. longstanding tradition. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully Troy and Josh don't listen too closely, just in case. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, looking through the, the campaign, I, I think it, it just looks like a book that is going to be just chock full of stuff to use and... Um, you know, a, a pretty good size. I, I think we talked a little bit about obviously the Kickstarter. Um, and, and I think you mentioned on, on the page that ultimately, you know, it'll be available via the Kickstarter um, then through drive-through. Is that correct? Yep, uh, for kind of like, what are they, what's their print to print their to like direct print. print. Yeah. Um, but it, it won't really have uh most likely won't have like a full distribution to, to retail. Now, I'm not planning on selling it through third, yeah. through the three tier distribution system that we have in the adventure gaming industry. I've done that before with other stuff. And, you know, as much as I am a big fan of this and I hope the, the backers are and everything else, not every game store in America wants to carry a third party Dungeons and Dragons source book. Right. And I don't really see the need to try to push that in every store. So instead, I want to go directly to consumers. We actually do have a uh, retail uh, uh, backing level on the Kickstarter as well. Like a so pledge a level for a... Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've had seven retailers step up so far and pledge over $200 each to be able to get in on this, and they can add more to it as they go along later on. Um, but, you know, they get a certain set of the books. Like, they'll get five of the original book, or the regular book, and one of the deluxe book, 
as a package. And then they can add more on after that at 50% off. Most of the times when you sell books to stores, they get 50% off, but then you're selling through distribution. It gets another 10%. Takes a cut so as there, the yeah. creator, you're only actually getting 40% of the retail cost of the book. And out of that, you got to take all your development costs and printing costs and mailing costs and everything else. So it adds up pretty quickly. It's a lot easier to make money on Kickstarter where you're selling directly to people, right? Because um, then you get 100% of the cost. Well, 90% after Kickstarter takes its bid and the credit card processing place takes its bid. But a lot of that happens when you're selling to other people anyway. So, um, so you make a, a good chunk more money and that means that it goes directly in the pockets of the people who are creating the game, right? So what we're gonna do is we're gonna print a, uh, uh, we're gonna do a full on print run for this. So we'll have you know uh, web printing as they call it, right? Uh, where it's actually done in a proper printing press uh, for the basic book or the standard hardcover. And then we're also gonna do an exclusive hardcover, uh, a deluxe edition hardcover, uh, which retails for a hundred bucks and, uh, that's going to have a uh, uh, leatherette cover on it, black you know, leatherette with a gold foil stamp with the logo. And so far, we've unlocked uh, a marker ribbon for it. We're looking at doing uh, gilt edges. So you have the gold edges on it. You know, it's going to look more like a Bible from when I was growing up as a kid in Catholic school. <laughs> and then <laughs> the next step, we're going to try to do like a leatherette dragon skin kind of uh, embossing on it, too. So. So it'll right. be something special. You know, it's the kind of thing you want to put on the shelf and people will say, hey, that looks cool. What the hell is that? Yeah. Um, and those will not be available after this. I mean, if there might be a small overrun because every time you, you do printing, uh, you have to, they tell you it can be plus or minus 20%. So you always over, you over ask by 20%. And then if they hit over that, then you got more, right? So if we have extras, we'll sell those. But once those are sold, then we're done, right? Well, uh, th those won't be available through print on demand or stores or anywhere else. If you like the collector stuff, that's where you go. So go get it, it now. now. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and if you just want the other book, great. I mean, the web print one will be at a better quality than the uh, than the print on demand one. But the print on demand ones are pretty good these days, actually. However, they're expensive. Like right now, we're selling this book for sixty bucks, um, and the print on demand version is probably going to be like seventy five, right? Because okay. print on demand just mm -hmm. ends up being more expensive and. And of course, the last year has even gotten more expensive over uh, the shipping piece of, of things. Yeah, and, and shipping is a big supply problem. shortages. Yeah. yeah, I am. Uh, I'm looking at a lot of different printers, but I got a really good price from a printer in Tennessee. And we're going to be um, shipping stuff through Atlas Games, which is up in Duluth, uh, Minnesota. Right. Got a, got so a good friend who works for Atlas. So oh, that's fantastic. I love Atlas. Right. Yeah. Great friends of mine from way back. Yeah, Travis Winter does a lot of their sales. Ah, very cool. uh, yeah, yeah. I hear from him occasionally. John Nephew is one of my oldest buddies in the industry. I've known him for many, many years. And I was actually there when he met his wife, Michelle, who helps run the company with him now. They do a great job. <laughs> awesome. Um, we were guests at a convention at UW Platteville. We were at PlatCon. Yeah. And Michelle was doing her master's or doctorate there. I forget which. So uh, and that's when they met. It was good times. Um but, you know, we're going to print. The funny part is the printer is actually so far, assuming we use this printer. I was going to ask if you're going to say what the printer is. You always, you always say it with such excitement. I think it's hilarious. Right? <laughs> Who are you using for a printer? We're using Justin's, right? Which prints like half the yearbooks in America. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if I can get like a class ring to go with it. Class know. ring, yeah. <laughs> that would be right? great if they could <laughs> do a uh, shotguns and sorcery class ring. <laughs> Dragon Mountain University. <laughs> the thing about Justice is they, they're really good at printing short run, full color, hardcover books. They do it for all across America every year. And it's like, oh yeah, a role-playing game, short run, full color, hardcover. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Um, it was actually AEG who taught me that trick about 15 years ago. They're like, yeah, we're printing a lot of stuff through Justice. Oh, wow. 
That's awesome. Why the hell not? I had no idea. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's usually cheaper to print in China nowadays, but then with yeah. you know, the shipping issues with China and the print and the global supply chain issues really becoming troublesome. Atlas will be happy to tell you about that. John's often on Twitter. He was actually on NPR a couple months ago talking about how that screwed things up where shipping containers that used to cost $3,000 now costing like up to $30,000. Wow. Yeah. Right? So uh, you can imagine what that does to your cost when you're you're suddenly you have an extra twenty seven thousand dollars you have to cough up for a product that you you thought you're making a good profit on yeah, we're trying to avoid those problems <laughs> well we've talked about that a lot too like you know just the 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 pricing that people want to see on games board games card games role-playing games when you think about what you get out of an rpg book like you know a group of people that can use it what it should be worth versus yeah. what kind of the, the acceptable price point is right now there's this disparity between the fun you get the time you can use it and what it allows you to do versus what the the internet or you know the right people that are critiquing price points well, want, everybody wants their entertainment to be free right, yeah, right. <laughs> the problem is if it's free then the people who are making it can't make a living yeah, at it right, and they stop right. doing it right yeah um, and it's not like anybody in the role-playing gaming industry with the possible exception of Wizards of the Coast and Paizo is making big bank on this stuff, guys. It's We're doing it because we love it, because it's a hobby we adore, and because we have fun with it. Um, you know, And I, I've made a decent living at doing games, but honestly, most of my money nowadays comes from doing video games and novels. And, and uh, you know, like I'm doing the Marvel tabletop game too, right? Which I'm, I'll probably make some decent money at because I'm actually, it's being published by Marvel, which is, you know, not, it's oh, not wow. a license so they can afford to do yeah. decent things. Um, but, you know, it's, Definitely not uh, like you're not rolling in cash as you as you start shipping stuff out the door. It's just not that way. Uh, and you know, honestly, they should be probably priced the same way that textbooks are, right? And when you go to college, right. you're like, holy shit, textbooks cost so much money. And it's because they're a limited print run for a limited audience. They're hardcover, have to be high quality. They should probably be priced like that, which means every role playing game book should probably be a hundred to hundred fifty bucks, yeah. which mm-hmm. is kind of soul crushing in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but you talk about in those terms. Go ahead. You're talking about you know uh, hours of enjoyment per 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 dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nope. You, you take a big uh, take a big book, take a big book like this one. If you're really gonna squeeze it, if you're really gonna squeeze it, you get you get a hundred, two hundred hours. Oh, sure. Out of a, yeah. book. Yep. a big yeah. book. Yeah, that's like a dollar an hour. Come on. Yeah. Right? Plus yeah. plus the number of players at that table. I mean, exactly. that, that's yeah. the other yeah. thing. Amortize that across everybody. It adds up yeah. pretty quick. Honestly, tabletop gaming is the cheapest form of entertainment in the world in a lot Absolutely. of ways. Absolutely. The other secret, of course, is that you only need the first basic book, and then you can do whatever the hell yeah. you want, right? You can make it all up after that. Um, it, honestly, if you're a good game designer, you don't have to pay anything. You make it all up yourself anyway. <laughs> but it's fun to be part of the community yeah. that's working on these things and doing stuff together, right? That's really the reason that I think a lot of this stuff works so well. It's the reason the OGL for the open game li- license for D and D did so well too. It just yeah. it said everybody wants to make something, come on and make something. You know, that's we're able to take advantage of that for this book here, which is a lot of fun. Before we leave shotguns and sorcery and the Kickstarter and into just a few kind of closing questions, is there anything sure. else about you know the world, the game, the book, the art, a character somebody should check out? What what are you kind of the 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 parting comments for um we have some pretty amazing artwork and you can see it on the kickstarter page this is actually the cover for the uh new for the new book right um i actually had this done up as a game screen that i was using at uh, game hole con now very cool pop your own things in there had these printed up as photos at walgreens (laughs) 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 yep 
Um, but the artwork's fantastic. It's Jeremy Muller who did all the artwork for the novel covers and for the uh, for the role playing game products. Does amazing work, right? We got a lot of great artwork in there. Uh, Marty and I, this is a passion project for us. We really adore it. We got a great team with Rob Schwab coming on now too. Uh, so yeah, these are people I, I'm excited to work with and do stuff with and proud to be doing stuff with. And I, I think people are going to be excited when they read it too. Uh, part of what you get when you uh, back the uh, project as well is you get a free ebook copy of the uh, Shotguns and Sorcery Omnibus, which is all the fiction that's been written for it to date, right? So that's three novels, two short stories and a novelette that you get to go along with it, to, you know, help you get in the mood, frame it all, make sure you're all on the same page, you know what's going on and get excited about it. You're also going to get a free, because we cracked one of the stretch goals, get a free copy of the comic book, which hasn't been released to the public yet, was released to the backers of the previous Kickstarter and now for you guys as well. Awesome. Um, so you get a 22 page full page or full size comic book uh, that I wrote that uh, Jeremy and his team did the artwork for. And it's, it's fantastic and fun. Um, and, you know, it's, we're, we're going to release some other stuff for uh, stretch goals as well, but we're trying to limit the stretch goals. So it's not the kind of stuff where it's like, and now we're going to add six other books and it's going to take three years to produce and all that kind of stuff. We want to get this in your hands as soon as possible. I think we should be done with, uh, have the book hopefully out as a PDF, maybe in January, right. As early as January and uh, assuming everything goes well, which of course it won't, which is the reason (laughs) I have it down as shipping in August. Um, you know, because if you put it out in January and then that gives us plenty of time to actually get the book printed too and get to people's hands, hopefully early. Because uh, nobody likes these things when they drag on forever. We want to we want to move on to the next cool thing too, right? We'll do this. Hope you got, while you guys are enjoying this, Marty and I will bring up other new cool, fun stuff to do uh, and play. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to be back for that kind of stuff too. Anything you cool. want to add, Marty? Uh, uh... <laughs> I have a habit of hammering these answers from the ground, so it's not your fault. I don't know, what do you want to add to it? I don't, I don't have any brew jokes prepared. Okay, well, next time. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm all out of jokes about brew. Give it time. Cool. So Matt, I got one question about the the setting, and, and if you, I'm just starting to read the omnibus, so maybe no spoilers as I. Okay. But, um, but as I, I'm really intrigued by the world and if I'm understanding the timeline right, you kind of did the world building way back when for the contest. Then you did the novels and then it kind of turned into a game. Was there anything that it, it like, as you did the novels, did, did that actually evolve the world or did you pretty much have it or, or just kind of interested in that? I'm always interested in that creative process. Of, that original, What's that? That original pitch doesn't even have the same name, right? No, originally, well, originally it was shotguns and sorcery and the guys at Mongoose said, no, 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 it's never going to sell. We can't do that. Uh, so it ended up being something called shadow Knight, Right. And it was uh, a little bit darker, a little bit stranger. And uh, honestly, when I started sitting down to write the novels, I threw all that out. I didn't pay attention to it. It was in the back of my head. I said, you know what? I know what the idea I want to have is. I'm not sure I'm ever going to do this as a game. So I'm just going to world build it for the story. I actually had somebody, the first Shotguns and Sorcery story, which is Friends Like These, somebody in England actually wrote me and said, can I use this to teach my creative writing class, Right. Um, because they thought it did such a good job of, I'm bragging here, of course, but um, they thought it did such a good job of uh, exposition, right? One of the big problems with doing fantasy or science fiction or whatever is trying to give information to people without it feeling like you're just, you know, you need to read this 12-page treatise before you can walk in the door. Uh, and so you just kind of give it out to them and in, in show, not tell, so to speak. And they really appreciated how I did it with that. So I was pretty proud of that. And I really enjoyed writing that story, that first one. It just fired off everything else from it. 
Um, and then when we did the cipher system, we, you know, it ended up being a little bit different. We do the fifth edition is a little bit different. I should dig out that old proposal. You've seen it, right, Marty? No, no. I, I asked you to send it to me. I was like, you should include it in the Kickstarter. People would right, love to see yeah. that ancient proposal. Yeah. And you were like, right. nah, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> who, would, who would want to see something called Shadow Knight? Because <laughs> you know what? If, when we came up with it, I'm going, okay, I'm going to sell it to you guys. It's going to be fun. We're going to make a lot of money. But Shadow Knight is like the most generic name generator kind of name in the world, right? Take two of the coolest things to think about in fantasy. Shadows and knights nice. and dragons and you know, clerics. Yeah. Dragon cleric versus Shadow Knight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That wasn't terribly. I thought shotguns and sorcery had a lot more flavor, yeah. to it, right? Yeah. The only problem I yeah. have with the name is every now and then people say, "Is it a western?" I'm like, "No, I've done enough westerns, really. Yeah. I understand that you're thinking shotgun on a on a stagecoach, but that's not really it. Yeah. Shotguns like yeah. the guy comes around from behind the uh, the car and is leveling a shotgun at you. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Answer the question. I hope so. No, it was good. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, Mark, right. I know to myself right here now. I will dig that out, see if I still have it. I never throw anything away, so I'm sure I do. In the files somewhere. Exactly. All right. Um, let's let's move on to just a few kind of, uh, I don't even know what to call them, general mixed questions bag. or mixed, mixed bag. bag. Yeah. Like grab bag. There we go. Grab bag. So um, my, my son is a big fan of the Minecraft Dungeons uh, book that you wrote, Rise of the Arch Illager. Um, and I have not read this myself, so I'm going off of his, his question, but he, he did describe to me and he said, I think there's some foreshadowing and it ends with a cliffhanger talks about a future adventure. And I said, I, I was like, yeah, I think that that checks out. That appears to be a bit of a cliffhanger, maybe some exactly. foreshadowing to another story. But he said, ask Matt, what happens? Where do they oh. go and what happens? And I said, I don't know if he'll tell us. It might be a book or something else that we have to wait for, buddy, but but I'll ask. And he wants to know what. <laughs> All right. Party's <laughs> dying. <laughs> he knows the answer. Um, what no. happens is you have to go play the so game. So sorry. Right? <laughs> uh, the, oh, the funny part. No, the whole thing is it's a prelude to the game, right? Yeah. When, when I was, uh, when they approached me to write this book and they're like, okay, what are we going to write? I'm like, I don't know. Um, they told me what I could not do. I could not write the story of the game, right? Because they wanted people to be able to play through the game. And, you know, part of it is because it's yeah. procedurally generating large yep. chunks and they want to uh, it's going to be different from place to place, whatever. There's, you know, signposts and goalposts, whatever. It's very much the same. But they wanted people to actually be able to experience that through the game. So they didn't want me to write the game. So I had to write something else. And they did not want me to use the characters that they provide you for the game either because everybody comes up with their own characters. So I'm like, okay, I can't use the characters for the game. I can't write about the game. What the hell do I write about? And they released a two-minute uh teaser trailer for an opening cutscene an opening cutscene for for minecraft dungeons i'm like oh i'm gonna make a 200 page novel <laughs> based on a um, two minute opening cutscene i'll uh i'll let him know that as he plays it on the switch almost yeah, daily that's it he that, is that is writing the story that's the what story happens. that's that's, take, that, right. that's that's arch illager too is, yeah exactly <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. Um, <laughs> quest for Curly's Gold. But uh, the funny part was, uh, I, I, uh, I don't know if you guys know Jeff Richard. He's the creative director of Chaosium these days, right? And he comes up to me at Gamehole County and says, Matt, 
my son loves this book. He thinks I'm the coolest guy because I know you. This is a kid whose godfather is is uh, Greg Stafford, and his other godparent was Steve Perrin. Uh, you know, and, uh, Ken Rolston used to babysit for him, but he thinks you're the cool one. I'm like, okay, obviously you've raised this kid wrong. I don't know what you're telling me, but it's because those guys were always in his life. He always knew who the hell they were. Right. And I'm just this mysterious guy who wrote a book based upon his favorite game that he plays. So it's very strange. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about when I told Landon that we were, we were talking to you tonight. He, he was incredibly excited because he recognized the name from his exactly. Minecraft books and from uh, the endless quest books. And I know Troy, yeah. you're, there you go. you're experiencing endless yeah, I get, quest. I get yeah. emails from uh, Facebook messages from people saying, Holy shit. That's you. My kid's reading your book. I'm like, <laughs> I haven't read for 20 years. Okay. Nice to see you. <laughs> So, and maybe I'll, I'll jump in on the endless quest again. Yeah. I have a, I'm old, but I also have a nine-year-old daughter uh, oh, and good. we've been working and we've been working through the endless quest. And I've, I was telling Ty before, actually, I'm enjoying, like we played tomb of annihilation. And so going back on the cleric, the cleric book, I'm like, Oh, I'm reliving Cholt and going through all this stuff, which is really cool. And yeah. that I get my question there is what's, what are the mechanics to actually through the endless quest? Is that like a giant, I don't know how you do it. Maybe is it a spreadsheet? Is it a, how do you get all that, like the construction? Well, that was, that's a tricky story. Uh, the, the way I did it was that was not the way I would have chosen to do it. Right. But uh, what happens is uh, the guys at the publisher or the, it was Kings road publishing or studio press over in the UK and Candlewick in the U S but I worked for the guys in the UK. Uh, they wrote me and said, okay, we want you to do this. Can you, you work it all out? And then they sent me a page plan for it, which basically was, all the pages of the book laid out and says, if you're on this page, then you go to this page or, or this page, right? And I couldn't understand the damn thing about it. So I actually had to sit down and make a flow chart for myself so I could actually see how everything went. <laughs> I couldn't visualize yeah. it otherwise. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. It makes sense if you're going through it on a page by page basis, but actually designing it, you have to understand the whole story and how it's going to yeah. spread out and where the ends are and everything else. So I made a flow chart for it and it was the same for every book. Right. So they didn't want me to change. I'm like, can I change things? They're like, no, no, it's stuck now. And I'm like, oh my God. And uh, the funnier part was that they wanted the ability to take the 128 page book and then do a 96 page black and white mass market edition, right? Which never happened, but they wanted the option for it. And they thought they'd sell them for like, you know, $3 or whatever through Scholastic. And um, so if you'll see parts of the book where there are not just two choices, but three choices, right? And those are the parts where I was able to take one part and just chunk the entire thing out of the book. So literally, if you took that third choice out of the book, you would reduce it to 96 pages and nobody would ever know. The reader would never know <laughs> that those pieces were missing. Now, in those places, obviously, that's not the good endings of the <laughs> book. <laughs> you get slaughtered in every one of those. No. <laughs> uh, but for me, a lot of the fun of writing those is that... Uh, uh, the ending, the, the the bad endings have to be just as much fun as the good ending, if not mm -hmm. more so, right? Because you're going to run into a lot more of those, and they have to be just as entertaining and uh, and frustrating <laughs> on yep. top of it as the good ending is. Because what happens is you go, damn it, and then you flip back to where exactly. you were before you keep going, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Everybody yeah. in the world does that. It's no surprise. In fact, we tell the kids to do that. Yeah. Mark your pages, <laughs> kids. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's do good. you? you've created and been involved with countless different projects and tons of nerdy realms, right? Uh, you're an author, editor, game designer, all sorts of different hats. Um, with all the awesome things you've done in your career, what feels most comfortable? Like what, 
realm and what hat you're wearing feels most comfortable to you? I tell you, uh, shotguns and sorcery is really comfortable for me, which is That's one awesome. of the reasons I keep coming back to it, I think. Um, it, this is like the blend of the, my two favorite things in the world when I was growing up. Two favorite authors were J.R.R. Tolkien and Raymond Chandler, right? So hard-boiled detective fiction and uh, and high fantasy. So for me, that's just a good crossroads for me to sit at. I always enjoy doing that. Um, I, I often end up, you know, superheroes are another big thing for me. I grew up, I learned how to read on Spidey comics from the electric company when I was like three years old. Um, and I've been a big fan of Marvel and DC my, my whole life. And uh, so I often come back to that. Uh, but, you know, I, one of my favorite things to do is write novels. And I haven't had a chance to do that for about a year now because I've been so busy with other stuff just because it's a very different experience for because you know, I grew up writing role-playing games and uh, that you're just pro you're providing tools for other people to tell the story. When you're writing a novel, you have to tell the entire thing, but then you get to ignore all the stuff that is not necessary to whatever you're writing, right? So instead of coming up with every possible permutation, you're just coming up with the basic stuff. Um, I'm very comfortable doing that. Comic books are probably the most challenging goddamn thing you're ever going to write mm -hmm. um, because a comic book is this, it's like a, an extended pictorial haiku, right? Uh, in that, you know, there's 22 pages and there's only a limited number of pages of panels on each page. And when you're building action, you build up from uh, from one side, you're, you know, you're over here, you're trying to build up over to this side. At the bottom of the right-hand page, that's when like, oh shit, what's going to happen? And you turn the page to find out. And oh my God, it's the splash <laughs> page. You know, to engineer all that into a comic book and make it seem like it's just natural and flows well is a real challenge and uh, I, I enjoy doing it but it's uh it's a puzzle to solve on a on a physical level as well as on a story level and to matching the two up there is always uh it's it's fun you know i, I enjoy doing it i got to write uh, a year's worth of magic the gathering comics for idw at one point and that was a kick and a half plus this i've written a few other ones over the years and they're always lots of fun. You plus the, the shotguns movies. and sorcery comic. That's what you're shotguns and sorcery comic, which, <laughs> which is coming to backers with any. If you back at any level, you get the comic as well. So there you yeah. go. Awesome. It's all good fun. <laughs> all right. But, so I mean, for me, the main thing is telling stories, right? I and mean, it doesn't matter if I'm working a, a comic book, a role playing game, a novel, a video game, whatever else. It all comes down to telling stories and kind of being true to the characters that are there and the world and have, helping it feel like it's authentic, even though it's a manufactured thing, right? Awesome. All right, Marty, I, I mentioned this, I think, right before we actually started recording. Um, being a uh, University of Wisconsin uh, fan of all things Badgers, are, uh, now you went to school there. Are you still in Madison or have you, you moved out of Madison? After I'm school? still in Madison, but I graduated about a year and a half ago. All right. So let, let's hear, what is your favorite game store in Madison? It's a great town for gaming. There's a ton of different places. Are you, maybe you're contractually not able to tell us, but do you have a, a favorite place to, to go or to game, to shop? Uh, I should probably plug on board, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, better give the right answer, kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's giving me the stink eye. Yeah, on board is a really good place to go. The I'm reason that he is, says is that awesome. is yeah. because I'm Bored is run by Brian Winter, who is one of my college roommates from Michigan. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's all, it's, it's all we all know each other. It's just how it works. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bored. Excellent. Noble Knight's very good, too. Pegasus Games is a place I grew up. Uh, Pegasus, yeah. Kid, uh, which is no longer. No, actually, they, they redid, didn't they? They rebooted with some new crew. I think somebody bought them up. Lori and the crew there actually shut the whole thing down. 
then somebody bought up the name and some of the assets like week a week or two later. I've not been to the new place at all. So it all happened during the pandemic. I'm like, well, you know, good luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah tough time for for game stores. Um, yeah, it's been. But Iron Board has been doing great. And Brian runs a great store. In fact, you opened another one out in uh, Sun Prairie, right? The original okay. one's in Middleton. And yeah. the new one's out in Sun Prairie. Yeah. Both of the Iron Madison. Boards are, are really nice, clean places. Fantastic. All right. So then if, if you were anything like me, you didn't always enjoy going to the library, but I had my, my place where I went to study that wasn't in, in, you know, my dorm room or apartment where I needed to get away from distractions and just focus. Were you a Memorial library guy or a Helen C. White college library guy? I was a Helen C. White guy. It's, it's right down the street. I mean, it's right down the street, the convenience, you can't be the convenience. I mean, you know, the, the, the selection might not be as big as Memorial, but uh, you can't beat the convenience when you when you're living right down the street. They got lots of comics at Helen C. White. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. They they, they right. added board games to Helen C. White. Did uh, they really? Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. You can rent a board game out of Helen C. White. So, oh man, uh, yeah, I, I liked it there. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Um, and then the the last question is, uh, are you a fan of Ian's Pizza? Uh, I would, uh, in, yes, I live, I, I live next to a much better pizza place. Which, Let me put it that way. Which, okay. So which one is that? I live, I live literally on top of a Salvatore's South. Pizzeria. Oh, nice. Fig, fig and pork belly pizza. And they used to do a carbonara. I mean, man. Yeah. Okay. Good point there. Yeah. But he, he has had Ian's and enjoyed it. His brother Kenny yeah. loved Ian's pizza. <laughs> Kenny's yeah, also going to UW right now. Awesome. So he's, he's a sophomore there. I was a I was a frequent flyer at Ian's. Um That's was good a stuff. couple blocks away from there, uh, the one on Francis. So years ago though, long, long ago. It's crazy how that campus changes every few years when I get back to Madison, just new buildings and new stuff. But whenever I get a chance to talk Madison, I do it. So um Troy and Josh are just kind of letting me uh, it's a great city it really yeah. is <laughs> yeah it's a beautiful beautiful place absolutely all right um i i think that brings us to the end of our uh scripted questions of the show guys okay um but what i'd like to do is just give give you a chance to to talk about where people can so obviously the the kickstarter going on now sure. but otherwise where where can anyone go to find okay. You guys, or sorry, I dropped out commentary. for a second. Oh, okay. No, no you're problem. back. I'm back. You're back. <laughs> All right. I was just saying, where where can people go to to find everything you do? Sure. Web presence, so on and so forth. All right. Uh, for the Kickstarter, you can go to Kickstarter and punch it in, but you can also just go to shotgunsnsorcery.com. And I've got a redirect set up that'll take you directly to the Kickstarter page. Uh, if for general stuff, you want to go to forbeck.com, F-O-R-B-E-C-K.com. And that's got a list of um, not all the stuff I've ever done, but a bunch of this for the last decade or so. Um, you can find me on Twitter at M Forbeck and on Instagram at M Forbeck and on Facebook at Forbeck. So how about you, Marty? Marty's not as much on the social media stuff. He's He grew up uh, with these like, what the hell are you people doing? No, no. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> social media is poison. Uh, if you can avoid it, uh, if you can avoid it, uh, do. And I mean, I can't avoid it entirely, uh, but um, I try to. Uh, 
you you can uh, find me on Twitter, although I don't use it. You you can still hit me up there um, uh, at Marty at Marty Forbeck, and uh, uh, my email is Marty at Forbeck It's literally my name with an at in it. <laughs> my, my dad set up uh, emails for all of us kids yeah. with uh, that are very very unsecured emails. Very hackable emails with, with our name. <laughs> Don't tell the world. <laughs> now, when we were starting out, I had to make passwords as easy enough for the little ones to understand. Now we're all secure. Mark. It's all Gmail two FA. Come on. <laughs> well, uh, you know, thank you guys so much uh, for taking the time to, to come on. Um, we certainly will be, uh, you know, getting this out here before the end of the Kickstarter, so that everyone can can listen and, and find out and directing them there as well. Um, but you know, thank you both so much for the time and, and best of luck, uh, here as we get into the final days to see this, uh, this take off and then can't wait to get a copy in the wild and, uh, subject yeah. my, my players to all the goodies. <laughs> well, thank you guys for having us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you tonight. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All right. And this is where we wrap up the episode. Uh, had a great conversation with Matt and, uh, and Marty uh, Forbeck, um, designers and, and authors of the Shotguns and Sorcery 5th Edition Sourcebook that's active on Kickstarter now. Make sure you get out there and back it before that ends this weekend. I think on the 16th evening of a couple different pledge levels, uh, some awesome content, but it was really great to to sit down and, and chat with them. Um, as to our show, uh, you can certainly uh, find us on, on iTunes. Um, hit us up Twitter at Plan Slant Show. Find us basementofdeath.com, where Troy meticulously posts every episode with incredible show notes, which we will also link to the Kickstarter and some yes. other things this time. <laughs> are, you, are you, I'm pledged. Are you pledged? I am. I am. All right. I pledged this afternoon. There we go. Joshy and no peer pressure. Just I uh, know I'm pledging right after recording here. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> um all right. So talked about website, Twitter, all the emails. Uh hit up the intern at basementofdeath.com, see what he's been up to. But for all of us at Plan and Slaying, once again, thank you to Matt and Marty Forbeck. Just an awesome discussion. And keep the dice rolling, the drinks on ice, and no matter what. Keep playing and slaying. I was uh I was thinking a little bit today about a D&D campaign and wanting to set it in Dragon Mountain but I want all of my players to be zombies on the outside of the wall. Ooh. And you're trying to break in to the city and getting attacked by people with shotguns 
as you just try to find the weak points in the wall. It would be a very short campaign, probably only one session. Um, but you're also at the table. You're not allowed to communicate in anything other than moans or grunts. Mm. <laughs> can I be a rogue zombie? No, you can just be a zombie. 